KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 103.9 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Welcome to Bridging Philly. When it comes to gun violence, we hear a lot about the arrests, but what about the victims that are left behind? Our guest this week is no stranger to the show, but now she's doing work out of the district attorney's office. We sit down with Melanie Nelson, director of the CARES unit. Charity Howard has our newsmaker this week, Duji Mashinda, founder of Vinyl Tap 215. Vinyl Tap 215 is group therapy camouflaged as an all-vinyl DJ event. Antoinette Lee has our Philly Rising changemaker this week, Philly Queer Birders. It's an LGBT group that advocates bird watching. That's a half hour you don't want to miss, and it's all coming up on Bridging Philly. Hello, and welcome to Bridging Philly. Our next guest is no stranger to the program as she has taken her expertise to the city of Philadelphia. Today, joining us is Melanie Nelson. Melanie is director of the CARES unit out of the district attorney's office. It's a peer crisis responders uh, unit for homicide survivors. Welcome to the program, Melanie, and congratulations on your role in the DAO. Thank you so much. (laughs) Very exciting. Now, why don't we just get right into it, Melanie, and talk about the CARES program. What is the CARES program and how did it begin? So the CARES program is a very unique program. All of the crisis peer responders are co-homicide survivors, including myself, Movita Johnson Harrell, who I love dearly, created the CARES program. Movita is no stranger to the city of Philadelphia and beyond. Unfortunately, gun violence has touched her life multiple, multiple times. So Movita came up with the idea that to have crisis responders on the crime scene Mm. immediately after a homicide, which is crucial, to be able to provide crisis support at that time to not only the mother and the father, but the other family members that are there, the community members that are there. So we are deployed to the crime scene and we are also deployed to the hospital. We walk with the families for the first 45 days of their horrible, horrible ordeal. And then we're doing that soft handoff to the community-based agencies to be able to assess their needs Mm -hmm. and help them with victims' compensation, help them with therapy. And of course, you know, all of our services are free. Talk to me about the importance of being there when it's happening, when it's fresh, when people are confused and they're hurting and and they really don't know where to look or who to talk to or or even how to think. I will say that in being in victim services for a long time, this side of victim services is very different than calling that mother or father two days after it has occurred. On the crime scene, It is the most heartbreaking thing you will ever see in your life. Mm. That mother, that father that has just learned that that is their baby who has lost their life to some type of violence. 
they are very, very appreciative. But as you can imagine, they don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn, what to do next. So we are able to connect with and not at all try to be in the way because that's a very difficult time. So we connect with some family member at the crime scene to be able to give them our information. We have to give them the number to the medical examiner's office because that mother or father, wife, husband, daughter, son, grandmother, grandfather, they have to unfortunately then go to the medical examiner's office and identify their loved one. So pre-COVID, The responders would also go with the families to the medical examiner's office to be able to, for them to have that, that support, because that again is just, it's just unbelievable. Right. Right. I I, I can't imagine that. Now, you know, what's interesting about the CARES program is that it's in the DAO's office, which I, I would imagine that a lot of people are surprised that the district attorney's office has something like this in place. Do you get that a lot? We do. We do. Like when I'm like going on to the scene or I'll call, people will pause for a minute. Now, like, you know, so I'm like, hi, this is Melanie Nelson from the CARES unit at the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. So they'll kind of pause Mm -hmm. because, as you know, the district attorney's office is not going to step in unless someone is apprehended. Mm -hmm. So that's just on the say the court side. But it is, I think, very important for this unit to be housed in the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. And and DA Krasner cares and we care. And I think it is so important for people to understand that, that when they see us in their community and we serve all of Philadelphia, not just one specific area. Mm -hmm. So when an arrest is made, we can still help that family to say, listen, we have great news. An arrest was made. Someone from our other unit on the victim services side will give you a call and walk you through that step. Because going to court for those families, that's that's another level of pain that they have to endure. But at the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office, we all work so closely together to be able to help those co-homicide survivors from beginning to end. You probably wish your department wasn't as busy uh, as it is, given the work you do. I I know that it's busy. Talk about the the volume of cases that you've been seeing and just the amount that you're you're dealing with at the uh, DAO. Raquel, I want to say my heart was so heavy this Memorial Day weekend. There is nothing that I can say to make anyone feel feel better. My phone was just going off all weekend from Friday to Monday, the number of victims who lost their lives to gun violence just from Friday to Monday, there was 15 to 17 homicides. And the, the age range is unbelievable. So the volume that the care responders has, including myself, it's, it's very high. And again, very, very heartbreaking. And here I am on my way to work this morning. And I was deployed to a crime scene, unfortunately, this morning. So it's the 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 volume is high Mm -hmm. and our caseload is heavy. Let's get back to the work that you that you do. And I I, I spoke to you earlier uh, in the beginning about the fact that, you know, people are 
you know, completely broken um, when, you know, you, you come on the scene. Let's walk through this entire process. So when we arrive on the crime scene, the first thing we do is we give the respect to the officers that are that are out there, whether it's the officers from the district, the lieutenants, the captains, because we all want to work together. So we let them know who we are. And nine times out of 10, they're letting us know, okay, that's the family right there. So then we'll go and we'll speak to the family. We'll speak to everyone who's on that scene because we want them to know who we are. We're giving them our information. Anyone that knows me, I'm giving you my car, but my cell phone number is on that car because I want them to be able to contact me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whenever they need me. So we'll give them our information. We'll give them water. We'll give them tissues. So we we want them to try just to hold on just a little while longer. So when that happens, the very next day, our lead responder, who was Yvonne Nelson, she will contact all of the families who have unfortunately lost a loved one the, the day before. So once that occurs, responders are calling the families to assess their need. We do home visits for them because we want to lay eyes on them. We want to be able to sit down and we want to speak to them. Mm -hmm. We give them the medical examiner's office because they have to identify their their loved one. And then we call and we check up on them to see what their need is. And then we have a very dynamic therapist, Lisa, from ABP under West Southwest. And that is a service for anyone who has um, been a victim, a co-homicide survivor. So we will reach out to Lisa if we need her as well. So we're walking them through. And even when they're in contact with a community-based agency, we still call them to assess their need to see how we can help. Melanie, it just sounds like the volume is overwhelming, especially with the, the, the work that you have to do and, and the care that you have to take with the with the victims. Everybody's able to be serviced, though, somehow. Yes. 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 So we get all of the alerts real time. So once we get those alerts, we are deploying our responders mm. to to go and meet with those families. So say, unfortunately, if something happens after 12 a.m., then we will get their information the very next day. And then my lead responder, Yvonne Nelson, will contact them the very next day. And then the responder will reach out to them to assess their need, see what they need, go see them at their home or wherever they're comfortable to be able to serve them. So every homicide, if the victim is identified, Raquel, and please understand, there are some times where we have a John Doe and we have a Jane Doe, yeah. which is very heartbreaking. So if we have that, then sometimes we can't get in touch with the, the next of kin because we don't know who they are. So that's why it's important for me to be able to be out in the community, whether that's at community events or what have you. But it's very important for people to know about the services that CARES offers. You know, you just walked us through the CARES program and, you know, how you're hands-on right when something happens. We talked about the fact that the Memorial Day weekend yielded, I don't know, 17 or so victims. Just what you described, times 17. I mean, and we don't really think about the fact that even just one homicide 
it has ripple effects. It affects so many people. It does. It, it affects so many people, the, the community as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I just did a presentation with uh, Majida at Nice Town CDC with some awesome young men. And the question I asked was, how many of you have been affected by gun violence? And I want to say it was probably about maybe 10 to 12 in there. And each one of them raised their hand, Raquel. One young man, it was a homicide that day when I went to go do the presentation. So I was a couple minutes late, but he said to me, I was on the bus and I actually saw that victim. He's on the bus to come to the program and he actually saw that victim. Wow. So it's just, it's just heartbreaking. You know, everyone processes tragedy differently. Um, I'm wondering if you have to tailor your approach with each victim and and their families. Yeah, you do. Every co-homicide survivor, we handle with care. We handle with love. We handle with empathy, but everyone is unique. We do not handle each family the same. They're not the same. And none of the crisis peer responders at CARE has become desensitized to all of the homicides that are occurring in the city of Philadelphia. Each one of them, they are dynamic and they love what they do and they have a passion for what they do. So this line of work, you have to, you have to. And I, I express self-care to them every day because it's so important because you go home and you look at your loved one and you understand that this could hit home at any time. And for some of us, it has hit home. Hmm. Yeah. It, it, I can imagine that it's hard to not take it home. Just covering it here, you know, from a a new standpoint, it takes a toll. I can't imagine being on these scenes day in, day out, day after day, um, and, and, and being immersed in these various trauma cases. It has to take a toll. I mean, you're not burnt out, but burnout, I know among people that are in this, this work is a concern. So who helps you? Well, okay. So for me, it's my, my family helps me. My husband sees the hard part. So my husband sees me crying at night mm-hmm. when nobody else sees me crying at night. Every homicide is hard. Every homicide is hard, Raquel. I call my dad all the time. So I talk to my dad a lot. And, um, you know, like I said, my husband. So they see the part of me that people don't see when I'm going to the crime scenes and I'm going to the hospitals. So they keep me, they keep me grounded. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this work isn't for everyone. Melanie, I couldn't do it. We all know we have self, we're self-aware, but it's not for everyone. What is it that drives you to continue in this work? I mean, this is something that you were doing before you were at the DA's office. I'll ask you about, you know, how you you transitioned into that, but what drives you to continue to do this? For me, it's so going back, my mother was the previous, previous executive director for Northwest Victim Services. So my mother started with Northwest Victim Services, I want to say in 2007. And I would help her just with fundraising. So my, my mom retired in 2012, Patricia Payne. 
and I sat on the board at Northwest Victim Services. And even sitting on the board, I knew then that helping people was my passion. And from that point, that was it. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I try to be available for those who need me around the clock. And it, it's not a job for me. It's my passion. Right. It's what I love to do. And I can't imagine doing anything else but helping those in need. Now, of course, this is something you were doing uh, before the DAO's office. But now that you're with the district attorney's office, would you say you're able to reach more people? I mean, you have a great team that works along with you. Yes, because in the Northwest, when I was at Northwest Victim Services, we served victims within the 14th, 35th, 35th, and 39th. Mm -hmm. And even if if they could live in the Northwest section or the crime could have occurred in a Northwest section, but being here at the CARES unit um, at the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office, it's all of Philadelphia. So I am able to serve many, many, many more individuals in need. And who's your team made made up of? So I have Shakina DeSager, who is the administrative manager. She is dynamic. She works around the clock. Yvonne Nelson, who is the lead responder, same thing. She works around the clock. She works out the West Philly office. So whenever I come to West Philly, she's like, we, we got to get something to eat. So she feeds me. <laughs> so I love it. So she she takes care of me that way. That's that's my therapy also. So then we have Deshonda Williams, who is Dr. D. She's actually a pastor. So and she is dynamic, very passionate about what she does. We have Andrea Rivera, a responder. And all of these these four responders that I have just named has been with CARES for about three years now. And, and CARES is about three years old. Mm-hmm. I have Jackie DeSager. She's awesome as well. Mark Pittman. He's a deacon and I believe his church is in Logan. And then I have Andre Nelson Jr., who is actually my, my oldest son. And he started his journey at Northwest Victim Services, I want to say probably about six to eight years ago, but it was under the executive director before myself. Well, that's a big team. That's a team that actually knows, uh, you know, the area and has the experience and knows how to, you know, a- approach uh, uh, these victims and, and knows what they're going through. So it, it's, it's that's, uh, that's important. Now, you were talking about uh, the families and following the families, being at the scene, being on location, helping them initially, of course, is all important. But how long do you follow the families for? So we follow the families for 45 days, but longer if needed. Okay. So we're never saying, oh, we're just going to be with you for 45 days. CARES was designed for short term because of the community-based agencies. So- we walk with them longer if they need us to, but we're putting them in the the hands of the community-based agencies. What would you say is the most challenging aspect of this program? The, the most challenging aspect of the CARES program is that I cannot take away the pain from all of those co-homicides Survivors. That's the most challenging part for me. 
What about services uh, for the family, such as um, counseling and things of that nature? Is that something that you guys help with and direct them to as well down the line? We do. Now, the therapy, we have Lisa from AVP. So Lisa will contact those co-homicide survivors and offer therapy to them. Again, all of our services are free. If the families need help with victims' compensation, or anything else, then that's when we're putting them in the hands of the community-based agencies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, we were talking about the age range of the victims just this past weekend, and it seems like the the victims and their families are getting younger and younger. We're talking about kids in school losing their classmates. (laughs) You're talking about siblings, you know, losing their brothers or sisters. Is it different having to help people that are so young? To me, it it is. And again, every homicide is important. Every mm-hmm. homicide deserves special attention. But to me, it is when you have those, those babies, it's just, you're, you're at like a loss of words when you're trying to serve those family members, because there's nothing you can say to be able to ease that pain even a little bit. So you're just at a complete, I am at a complete loss of of words to be able to help them to to just say, we'll try to help you get through this. You know what I mean? We'll try to help you heal just a little bit. But when it's the babies, it just takes on a, a different meaning. Yeah. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. But you guys are doing uh, powerful work, important work. And, you know, I think it's important that, you know, people get uh, an up-close look at exactly what you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. It is tremendous. It's 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 heartbreaking. But um, thankfully, we have strong individuals like yourself and your team uh, that are able to help people every day as we continue to see more lives senselessly uh, taken. Um, yeah, it is. And, and I, I appreciate it. And and they're on call like all the time. Like, you know, when I hear my phone go off, I, I could be at the mall. You know what I mean? I could be home anywhere. When I hear my phone going off, I could be at the office. Then we just we just jump into action. Well, let me ask you a human question. You're at the mall. You're you're relaxing. You found time for yourself. Your phone goes off. Do you ever just want to look at it and say, no, I, I, I can't. Not me. And my mm. husband knows. Fire up the Batmobile. We are gone. We're out. I got to go. So and just the Memorial Day weekend. So I'm saying to him, listen, I think I'm going to drive my car and you take your car. Mm. So that way mm-hmm. you don't have to leave because I may have to leave. So for me, it's it's never a question, never a doubt. Whatever I'm doing, I'm dropping it and I have to go where I'm needed. I always say first responders are cut from a very different cloth, but we are thankful yeah. for you. Melanie Nelson, you. Director of the CARES Unit uh, with the District Attorney's Office in Philadelphia, thank you so much for giving us a, a look at what you guys have to do day to day in the, the CARES program. Thank you so much for your time on Bridging Philly. Thank you for having me. Sharaday Howard brings us this week's Newsmaker. 
Doogee Mashenda, also known as Doogee 13, is the founder of Vinyl Tap 215, a group of DJs that host parties across the city with the purpose of inclusion by advocating for marginalized communities and bridging those communities through music and awareness at his parties. So I sat down with Mashenda in West Philly's Clark Park to discuss his art and activism. Doogee, welcome to Bridging Philly. Thanks for having me, Charday. Okay, so we look around, we're sitting in the park, and we can't help but notice the future right in front of us. And you say, that's what matters most, generations to come. And that's why you say this June, Pride Month and Juneteenth, take center stage for you. Like, we can't wait for a new world to just drop out of the sky. We gotta build towards it. So let's talk about Vinyl Tap and what that is to you and what that is to Philly and where that really fits into all of this. Vinyl Tap 215 is group therapy camouflaged as an all-vinyl DJ event. There's been folks coming to Vinyl Tap for three, four years that have um, got through depression. People have gotten over breakups. People have like had um, a community of support. People who weren't DJing with records for years, for whatever reasons with their family, started DJing again with Vinyl Tap. It's egalitarian. There's no like top down, I know about more records. Oh, you don't know this record? There's none of that. We're all there to learn. There's folks who weren't even calling themselves DJs when they started playing with us that I can send places by themselves to rock and hold it down. So I guess we're like professional development. We're um, a family, to say less, you know what I mean? The, the tagline last year was play records, have fun, be family. This year the tagline is joy is a choice because, you know, we move forward. And it's about progress, right? Yeah, I mean, if you don't have a joy-centered um, life way, I, I can't hold you, you know what I mean? I'm trying to get this joy. <laughs> and what you're doing is you're sharing it. You're always sharing it. You're always picking people up, lifting people up. How is that part of your your activism? Um, it was what I was taught at home. And it's also like, I mean, in the last couple of years, we saw folks who were already selfish find more reasons to be selfish. Folks were community-oriented, found more reasons to be community-oriented. We were doing Zoom calls for check-ins on a regular basis. I was supposed to send an email for the thing tonight and it's summertime. I don't even know if anybody's gonna come, but I'm gonna go home and send an email to see who needs to have a space to talk. So as a Philadelphia community, we've also been suffering from gun violence and now we've just had this shooting. How do you cope? How do you help others get through this? There's always stuff going on. You know, we just had a shooting on South Street. I had to talk to my kid about Texas last last week. Buffalo was the week before. And um, the world feels less safe every day. So people have to have a space where they can gather with like-minded individuals to just feel seen and heard. Um, I just asked them how they're doing. I'm, I talk about, I, I, I point at the elephant in the room and say, how are you doing with this? And even if folks, and if the fact that we talk about it, I feel is valuable because it's other folks just walking around like, oh, everything is okay. Things have been okay for over two years. And for us to pretend that it is, it's disingenuous to our children and ourselves and our kids know when we're faking it. And we're out here at Clark Park, we can see the kids, we can hear the basketballs, we can hear the playing. What you do is so community-based and it's more appropriate that we sit and we look around and we, See who's affected directly by all of this gun violence, by the street violence. Pray to who you worship. <laughs> to do the right thing when you can do the right thing. It could be a small thing, it could be a big thing. For Juneteenth, we're gonna have 
folks celebrating and we're going to have folks doing serious stuff because I don't know if you've been paying attention the last couple of years, we got to go through the serious stuff to get to the joy and life. You know what I mean? Yin yang balance. You got to really do both and to go forward, make provisions for those who are doing the work to have support. So your business, your artistry, DJing is the foundation of what hip hop is and so much of Philadelphia, so many parts, especially here in West Philly. And you've combined being a father, you being an artist, a poet, you've got your own book out. You're a dad. Man, I tell folks with little budgets that want me to spend a night, because most of my gigs are dad hours. I'm home by 11, I'm home by six. I don't work on Sundays. I tell folks, you got a little budget, you want me to spend a night, you're not paying me to spend records, you're paying me to miss bedtime. It's very important for me to be home with my child because those little moments that they share with you between dinner and bedtime, it's irreplaceable. They tell you what's going on. It was, when you ask a kid directly what's going on in school, they won't tell you. But when you spend time with them and make them feel safe and secure and heard, then they volunteer information. And you, got, and you gotta be there to get that experience. And you show up, that's what you're known for. You not only show up, you show out, and when you get there, something changes. Why is this Juneteenth special to you, as a dad, as an artist, as a Philadelphian? This is my second year of having the opportunity to do Juneteenth event at Bartram's Garden. This year we're doing it, and it's Father's Day. So me being a father, I can't think of nothing else I would rather be doing than celebrating my relative freedom, but also with Juneteenth being part of the mainstream conversations. I didn't grow up knowing what Juneteenth was, honestly. I found out in college. But it being the part of the mainstream conversation and we're on the foundation level of building a tradition on how we celebrate it. And if, we, if we're at the foundational level, we're already building into it an acknowledgement of relative freedom, people who are incarcerated, people in mental health institutions, and, all, and having a party, and collecting donations so people can keep doing this work. So I feel like the, um, we have, a, I guess, a triangle offense going here. Shout out to Phil Jackson. And... Um, and you know, because so many, so often when things are going on right now, we like, we have a party, we raise awareness, but then what are the next steps? And I got an admin pool now, and they was, they was giving me a shout out and giving me love for having that in place. And it was just like, you know what I mean? And uh, um, an idea that sparked in the moment when I was having a conversation with Bartram and Sparrow Q. I'm on the board, by the way. <laughs> Um, and what are some things people are going to see for Juneteenth? Give us a, a rundown. Um, DJ sets by DJ J, Super Tang, Paulie Paul, and myself. We have a um, Ankh Fire is going to play drums and hopefully perform a little bit. Paul Best is going to tell stories. Um, I think Angelique Long is going to give us a little fitness demonstration. That's going to be in the big pavilion tent at um, Barsham Gardens. So this Juneteenth's gonna be popping, but you're also gonna have your book out. You're an author. You said it's kind of like a treatment plan. 
Well, the book Traces of Infinity, it's a, um, a document of um, pieces of my life for the last 30 years. I mean, just most of the time of the last 30 years, since 1996, I guess it's 25, it's been me um, getting a handle on my bipolar and, and trying to stay out of the hospital. So um, it's grouped in the sections, crisis, recovery, and wellness. Because anybody who's been through the, um, the carousel of mental health challenges, it goes, it's like crisis, recovery, then you get back to crisis, <laughs> recovery, you have a little bit of good time, deconversation, crisis, recovery. And so the wellness part, it's been 10 years now since I've had a 201 or a 302. And that's a voluntary or involuntary commitment because you have been deemed unsafe to yourself or others. I broke that down for the folks at home. And so that's 10 years that I figured something out after tw after 96 to 2012 of like going through back and forth, back and forth, the longest period of five years of protracted wellness. And since, you know, I was exposed to some NA stuff when in hospitals and everything, when they assumed that any usage is addiction and you have to learn that what's good for you is not necessarily good for everybody. And you had to figure it out without a roadmap because in the black and brown communities, we don't talk about mental health. It's nope. not something that we sit down at the table and go, how are you? And actually sit, listen, and think, what's the next step? I was too much for my family. Um, and I was, you know me, and I'm a, I'm a big black man. So when I behave in a manner that shows me as um, paranoid or psychotic, it makes other people afraid. And I'm fortunate that there were people that cared enough about me to help me find my way. Like, um, Someone asked me, you know, how do I find myself in company with queer folks so much? And I, and I thought about it. And a big part of um, a lot of queer and trans folks' journey is um, they get kicked out the house. They have housing instability because of who they are. As someone whose mental health behavior during mental health crisis caused him to be homeless and have to figure out where to sleep at night. You know what I mean? I have a kinship with queer folk and trans folk who had a similar experience for different reasons. And also people are people I learned from an early age. My mom had gay friends. And you've always been an ally to the community. You're a dad, you're a straight man, but you've never strayed away from making sure that your activism included the LGBTQ communities. The Pink Floyd shirt that I wear is for the dark side of the moon and it has a rainbow in it. And um, when my kid was young, she's like, well, I like that rainbow shirt. And um, I keep a, a rainbow sash on my DJ bag as like a little quiet, you know what I mean? My entire lineup at the Juneteenth event is either queer or woman, except for me. Um, and I'm like, you know, I'm the guy at the queer party anyway, right? <laughs> so I just think um, understanding that um, as a cishet man, my liberation is tied to the liberation of folks who are further marginalized to me. So often we got these fellas who um, don't really want to dismantle the patriarchy or white supremacy. They just want a better place in it. And that's not, and they, you know, liberation for one is liberation for all. That's what I believe and that's what I walk. I mean, I mean I'm not really wanting to be talking too much 
because it's about what we're doing. Right. So let's talk about next steps. What's coming next for you? Um, in July, we'll be at Amalgam Comics and Coffee House. And the, um, the theme is going to be um, Imagining New Worlds. We're doing a, um, there's going to be a literary comp, um, component in the middle of the DJ event, in the middle of the DJ sets. Brother Jelani Wilson will be reading from his um, black sci-fi literature. I'm going to be reading from my book, Traces of Infinity. And um, yeah, it's, um, it's going to have like an Afrofuturist um, theme. So expect like some Sun Ra to be played and it's probably some Dorothy Ashby and whatever folks, you know what I mean, the DJs bring to um, promote that environment. And that's not Philly right now either. Philly's not sitting back waiting for anything. Oh, for sure. I mean, just the um, all of the amazing work that's been doing, folks have been doing in the neighborhood to call out the inherent racism, all of the work that folks have been doing to just um, just be out and proud. Just be who you are and not worry about what people think of you. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Charaday. At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia, and since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia, and since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Devro Advanced Behavioral Health. K-Y-W's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. Nature is healing, y'all, and this group called Philly Queer Birders is working to create a space that's more inclusive, safe, and welcoming for the LGBTQ community through the outdoor hobby of birding. Now, this group was started about a year ago in the midst of the pandemic, but it's continuing to take flight. Here's more on Philly Queer Birders. My name is Elise Greenberg, and I am the organizer and founder of Philly Queer Birders. Thank you so much for joining us on Bridging Philly this week, Elise. Thanks for having me. So tell us what your organization is and how you got started. So Philly Queer Birders um, is a group that's about a year old, um, a little over that now, Um And we are a group of people who enjoy birding, people who are enthusiastic about birds, people who consider themselves birders or maybe just like nature. Um, And we go out a couple of times a month um, to create queer community in and around Philadelphia to connect with new friends, maybe see some old friends and to learn about birds together and um, you know, to, to get outside and to enjoy birds in nature. Um, we got started in March of 2021. 
uh, it just felt very out of control, very like it wasn't safe to hang out inside. And so creating queer community in a safe way, um, both like safe in a health uh, and pandemic way, but also safe in like creating safe queer community way. Um, and that's kind of where we started. And, and since then we've connected with a lot of other birding groups um, or, you know, we've kind of shifted from like just a meetup to doing more guided walks, more education, partnering with parks around the city. And uh, we've, we've grown a lot. Sounds like you all have been busy in the uh, last year. Yeah, we've been very busy. The group has grown in a way that I, I didn't really imagine. Um, I've brought on a few people to help me out and uh, we regularly get 30-ish people out at our walks. And what do you think it is that has drawn people to uh, Philly Queer Birders? Definitely a part of it is like, again, connecting in a like physically safe way. Um, you know, people are hesitant to create community in ways indoors right now. I mean, even now, you know, it's a little touch and go. Um, so being outside, number one, is great. Um, but I think it's also, you know, I, I've learned a lot in this birding community, both locally and nationally, about like the movement to make birding more accessible to communities who might not always feel welcomed in the outside or who it just doesn't feel like a hobby or anything that they can access. And so making this space very inclusive of people who've never been birding before, uh, inclusive of people who have been birding before and want to share their knowledge. Um, and in a way that, you know, acknowledges the queer experience and centers queer people's knowledge. Um, and it's a great way to make friends. You know, it, it, we regularly get a lot of people out. And I think when people see that, they're like, oh, maybe I should check that out. So it's kind of like this lovely, positive cycle of, you know, drawing new people to us. So it's an exciting, exciting thing to be a part of. And the birds are great. <laughs> You mentioned something that I think is uh, really important, and it's about taking up space and making outdoors inclusive, right? Because I know there are Blackbirders groups who have sort of spawned out of that idea, right? Let's talk a little bit about why you saw the need for a Philly Queer Birders group. To be honest, the idea for the group, I don't think originally started as something that was like, well, queer people don't feel included in the outdoors, but it was clear you know, early on that like birding historically is kind of this like intimidating hobby because, you know, it's people see it as like an older white man's hobby. People see it as a hobby that you need a lot of really expensive gear. And I think that specifically, you know, queer people might not feel welcomed in those spaces. Um, they might not feel their gender identity is uh, welcome. They might not feel that um, it's a safe space for them to be in. Uh, and so it quickly turned from like, let's create this community to let's create this community and address a need as well. What do you think the community finds when they're outside and birding? What kind of relief comes from that sport? I know for me personally, birding has given me, like, going outside with a mission has been really important. Sometimes I feel it's difficult to just take a walk with no purpose, but to, like, take a walk and be like, I'm going to go try and see this bird today or any bird today, I think is really good. And so I think that being outside with purpose, both for seeing birds, but also, like, making friends I've, you know, people have been on dates to our birding walks. Like it's like, you know, it's, it's 
a great way to be outside and to try something new. And even if it's not new to you, you're connecting with you know your people, you're connecting with other queer people, other community. And um, I think that in the winter, like in the colder months, it you know gives you a reason to be outside when it might be harder to. And in the warmer months, it's just like lovely to be in nature and seeing birds. How people can contact you or get in touch if they are interested in joining in on the festivities. Yeah, I, we go out a couple times a month around Philadelphia. We try to stick close to public transit to remain accessible. We also do stationary birding outings. So rather than walking, we'll take a little sit. Um, and it's great to be um, accessible for people with disabilities in that way. Um, so we try to offer something for everybody. And anybody who aligns with our values is welcome to come. Uh, and um, it's a really great time. We really have a good time out there. Uh, you can connect with us on Instagram or on our website. We do have a walk coming up this weekend at Stonely Garden. It's our first walk outside of Philadelphia, but still close by. Uh, and then I believe we have one other walk um, in Fairmount Park at the Discovery Center coming up and we might do a little picnic. We um, are most active on our Instagram, but we also have a website with a fully up-to-date calendar of events coming up. Um, some events require registration, most of them don't. Um, and we typically announce our events on Instagram like 10-ish days ahead of time. So that's the best way to keep up with us. Maybe we'll have a mailing list in the future. Events are always free. We've had donation-based events in the past to you know, support causes, but you know, never required to make a payment. We do have extra binoculars. So if you don't have a pair of binoculars, we almost always have enough for everybody who doesn't. And usually just a sturdy pair of shoes and that's it. That's it for this week's Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. If you know a Philly Rising Changemaker we should highlight next, please reach out. There are a couple of ways you can do that. You can go to kywnewsradio.com slash Philly Rising to submit your ideas there. That's kywnewsradio.com slash Philly Rising. Or you can always find me on Twitter and shoot me your ideas there. I'm at A-R-Lee on air. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us on Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Shara Day Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.